Welcome to Hackstack Level 2. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to take your life to greater heights and deeper fulfillment. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of episodes 1 through 11. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Hey everyone, welcome to a very special edition of Hackstack. This is episode number 18. And this is going to be the New Year's Resolution Special Edition of Hackstack. So I'm posting this episode uh, about three weeks before the new year. Uh, I want to give you guys plenty of time to work on your New Year's resolutions and your goals. And that takes a little bit of time. Uh, Most people think of that like (laughs) the day before, like, couple days before New Year's or they have really vague things like, ah, you know, I don't know, starting January 1st, I may give this a try. And I'm sure you've seen it if you've ever gone to the gym uh, during January. Super duper crowded. A lot of people are all all geeked up, all jacked up about uh, getting into shape. And then come March, hardly anyone's there. And actually, that may have been you at one point, but not you, not any longer, not anymore you will now have the tools to actually follow through on your goals. This year is different. And why is it different? Because you have the mindset of a champion. Now, you'd think being a a New Year's resolution type show, and again, I realize that maybe not everyone is listening to this in the month of December, and the New Year may have come and gone, and and I appreciate that. (laughs) So if you've discovered this show a little bit later on and you're listening to this after the New Year's, that's okay. Uh, The concepts and principles still apply. But I'm going to surprise you a little bit. This show isn't necessarily about goal setting. Uh, We've already covered that, and if you need a quick review, you can go back to episode 8, which is all about goal setting. This show, we are actually going to give you some practical tips on how to bridge that gap. And what gap am I talking about? I've talked about it several times, but it's the gap between knowledge and action. First, you need to have the knowledge and the know-how of of what you want to accomplish and how you want to accomplish it. And that's pretty much the entire first 11 episodes of this show. And then you have to take that knowledge and you have to take action. And to bridge that gap between action and knowledge, you need a process. And that's what we're going to talk about during this whole show is how to develop that good process. But to start off like we typically do, We are going to start off with a little motivational clip for you guys, a little nitrous oxide in the race of life, give you a little pep, and it appropriately starts off with an alarm clock, something we've talked about a lot when we talked about the Miracle Morning. So here you go. Rise and shine. 6 a.m. and your hand can't make it to the alarm clock before the voices in your head start telling you that it's too early, too dark, and too cold to get out of bed. Aching muscles lie still in rebellion, pretending not to hear your brain commanding them to move. A legion of voices are shouting their unanimous permission for you to hit the snooze button and go back to dreamland. But you didn't ask their opinion. The voice you've chosen to listen to is one of defiance. A voice that says there was a reason you set that alarm in the first place. So sit up, put your feet on the floor, and don't look back because we've got work to do. Welcome to the grind. For what is each day but a series of conflicts between the right way and the easy way? 10,000 streams fan out like a river delta before you, each one promising the path of least resistance. Thing is, you're headed upstream. And when you make that choice, 
when you decide to turn your back on what's comfortable and safe and what some would call common sense, well, that's day one. From there, it only gets tougher. So just make sure this is something you want because the easy way out will always be there, ready to wash you away. All you have to do is pick up your feet. If you want to begin to move into your own personal greatness, if you want to begin to really enjoy a happy, successful, healthy life, you've got to be willing to go against the tide. You've got to be willing to harness your will. I'm in control here. I'm not going to let this get me down. I'm not going to let this destroy me. I'm coming back. And I'll be stronger and better because of it. You have got to make a declaration. That this is what you stand for. You're standing up for your dreams. You're standing up for peace of mind. You're standing up for health. You want it. And you're going to go all out to have it. It's not going to be easy. If, if it were in fact easy, everybody would do it. But if you're serious, you'll go all out. So yes, I'm going to turn this situation around. I'm not going to sit back and, and moan and cry over what happened and what went wrong and who did what. I'm going to do something about this situation. The next thing that is important is that expect things to get better for you. Because they are. See, life is cyclic. You're not, what is, whatever experience you're having right now, it has not come to stay. It has come to pass. Not to stay, just to pass. It's just going through. The biggest challenge is, is to know what's happening. This is a part of this thing we call life. This too shall pass. And maintaining perspective, putting it in perspective. Take full responsibility for your life. Accept where you are and the responsibility that you're going to take yourself where you want to go. Someone said we have two primary choices in life. We can either accept conditions as they exist or we can take the responsibility to change them. You can always better your best. You can always go beyond anything that you have ever done. You never hit a state of perfection. You're always bigger than what you do. And so all you're looking for are new breakthroughs through practice and practice and practice. You'll get better and better and better. It's not going to be easy when you want to change. It's not easy. If it were in fact easy, everybody would do it. To have more, you simply have to become more. But don't wish it was easier. Wish you were better. If you want to be the best, at that. If you want to reach the pinnacle of that, you must be. There's no way around it. You have to be obsessed with obtaining that. Greatness in any field, greatness cannot be achieved without obsession. All right, there you go. The easy path is always beckoning you. It is always there for you to take. But remember, you can always better your best. And don't wish things were easier. Wish you were better. And those are some very powerful comments. Because you can always get better. But to get better, you need a system to get better.
You need a process. You need a success template that you can apply from one area of your life to another area. You ever notice how some pro athletes are just amazingly awesome at all sports? You've had some athletes in the past that both play Major League Baseball and Major League Football. You know, Deion Sanders or Bo Jackson. You've got Michael Jordan that was probably the greatest basketball player to ever lace up shoes. Also gave his try at baseball. And I heard he's a pretty good golfer as well. There are a bunch of professional football players that are really, really, really good at golf. Uh, maybe not top, upper echelon elite, but, <laughs> but pretty good. Uh, I think Tony Romo comes to mind, both an NFL quarterback and apparently an amazing amateur golfer. So what's my point of all this? If you're good at athletics, you can usually translate that into other athletic endeavors. You can use some of the tools that are already in your toolkit, right? Strength, coordination, speed, dexterity. And you can learn things a little bit easier and a little bit quicker than other people can. Well, the same thing is true in life. If you're successful in one area of your life, you should be able to translate that over into other areas of your life. I mean, if you can be a leader at work, if you can get things done at work, if you can have those difficult conversations at work, if you can be firm and aggressive and assertive when you need to be at work, and you can also be gentle with right personalities and coaxing and reassuring at work uh, when you handle all these different personalities, there's no reason why that same thing can't apply to home and parenting, right? There's, there's a time when you need to be firm, and there's a time when you need to be gentle and understanding, and finding that mix is is both an art and science, but you can see how some of these things translate over. So again, we're going to talk about how to develop our systems to get better and more consistent, and it's probably easier than you may think. And to start this off, I'm going to play an interview, and I came across this interview uh, from uh, Success Magazine. Okay, now, again, if you're unfamiliar with it, that is Darren Hardy's magazine. And again, Darren Hardy wrote The Compound Effect. I've played a couple clips from him in the past. But um, the, hey, and also being December, if you're looking for a good uh, holiday Christmas gift or whatever for your loved ones, a subscription to Success Magazine is a really, really good idea. Uh, let me let me give you a quick sales pitch on that. It's, it's probably only, I don't know, either side of 20 bucks for a year uh, subscription. And here are the two best parts. Um, there's some good articles in there for sure, but the two best parts of it at the end of every magazine, there is a list of recommended books. They recommend maybe five books or so. And I'm telling you, you'll look at that list and you'll probably want to read three of the four. Uh, all, all great books, really, really good idea uh, for book idea generation, you know, for your audiobook library. The other interesting thing is every issue has a CD. And on that CD, Darren Hardy interviews uh, various leaders in, in industry and business. And the clip I'm about to play for you is from one of those CDs. So not only do you get the, uh, the articles in the magazine, the book recommendations, you also get a nice bit of audio material, which even if you just listen to the CD, it's probably worth it for that alone. So this clip is a clip with a entrepreneur by the name of Marie Forleo. There's a couple things that are pretty interesting in this this interview. She talks about being a woman in a, a male-dominated industry and how that kind of put a little chip on her shoulder uh, in a good way. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. There's always 
people that are telling you what you can and can't do, people that will doubt you, things of that nature. But uh, that's part of the fun to, to prove them wrong, right? But I'm going to play this clip. And afterwards, I'm going to tell you about the, the two most important concepts from this clip that will start to be the foundation of how you build your process. Okay, here's the clip. What's a multi-passionate entrepreneur? Well, the way I actually came up with that term was way back when I first started my life coaching business, I was at the ripe age of 23. And yes, I know it kind of sounds ridiculous. I was even rolling my eyes at myself. The truth is that I was reading every book I could get my hands on about success and, you know, how to run a successful business because I didn't know that information. And all the wisdom that I was coming across was telling me, you know, you have to niche down. You have to be known for one thing. You have to really focus in. Now, the big problem was I had all these various passions and talents. I loved personal development. I loved entrepreneurship and spirituality. I also loved fitness and dance and specifically hip hop. So every time I tried to follow conventional wisdom and when people asked me what I did, I would say, I'm a life coach. It felt like I was cutting off a limb. It just didn't feel right. There was some part of me that felt like it was missing. And it wasn't until I was able to just lay down all of that old school kind of advice and all of those ideas and embrace the fact that I have different things that I'm passionate about. I have different talents and just gave myself permission to pursue all of them and to be this multifaceted human being. That's when everything started to click for me. Not only was I a lot happier, my creativity soared. Uh, I was a lot more interesting at cocktail parties, and it really gave me the traction that helped me get to where I am today. So it's really up to us. It's our responsibility to really include all of those different aspects of ourselves, find ways of expressing it, and give ourselves the best chance we can have of making the impact we're born to make. From what I know about you, Marie, one of the things you've always felt strongly about is that you wanted to make a bigger impact on the world. You didn't want to just be a cog, say, in somebody else's wheel. So talk about what you've done to accomplish this in ways that you have been successful that someone else, perhaps those that are listening, could also follow in your footsteps. One of the biggest things that I've trained myself to do over the years is start before I'm ready. And I think that is a concept and an idea that we can all hang on to and leverage to get ourselves to take those next leaps or those next steps to create the vision that we have for what our life can be. So for me, you know, when I started, I had no idea what it took to start a business. And there were so many pieces that were just completely unknown. Uh, I had, you know, tens of thousand dollars of debt. I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't really have anything going for me. I had no connections, but I knew that there was this thing I wanted to create. And the best way I was going to figure it out was just to dive in headfirst and get messy, <laughs> start doing it, start making mistakes and, and figure it out as I went along. And I think that's one of the big things. You know, we can spend so much time in our minds, especially as we get and we have success, it almost becomes harder to make those big changes, right? Because we have so much on the line that we could lose, whether that's our ego or our reputation or our financial stability or any myriad of things. But this 
kind of mantra of starting before you're ready really helps you to overcome some of those limitations and fears and self-doubts that can keep us stuck. You know, one of the other things that I live my life by is this idea that clarity comes from engagement, not thought. That's not to minimize the importance of our intellect and our ability to reason and our ability to research, but our own experience and engaging in an activity is usually where we find out for sure whether or not we want to do something We want to keep moving ahead. Whether we need to pivot, it informs our best next decisions. So for me, the quicker I can dive in head first, (laughs) get messy, make mistakes, figure things out and trust that clarity comes from engagement, not thought. That has always helped me create the kind of life and the kind of business that I desire. Yeah, I like that. Start before you're ready because it, it breaks this uh, paralysis, right? This seemingly justifiable excuse that I, I'm, I'm not ready. I don't know enough. I need to, to go, you know, study this or talk to this or wait for this to be perfected and so forth. And it, it breaks inertia. It gets you in, in that process, what you call engagement. And that's when the clarity and the learning and the, the real discoveries take place. So let's talk about social change a little bit. Uh, I know that uh, social change is baked right into into you and into your business model. Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite aspects of our business, Darren, and it's this initiative called Change Your Life, Change the World. So anytime our customers buy one of our educational products or programs, we take a portion of that revenue and we invest it back with organizations that are helping to make a real difference to folks all around the world, both here in the United States and globally, that need it most. So the idea is this, the more that we succeed and the better job we do in our business, meaning growing our profits and growing our revenues and growing our reach, the more change we create in the world. And for me, it's this cool, virtuous cycle of goodness that is so much more exciting and so much more fulfilling to me personally and to my team than just trying to succeed for our own gain. You know, so far, we've built six schools with our partners at Pencils of Promise. We funded six clean water projects with Charity Water, an incredible organization bringing clean water to about 1,500 people. We've helped lift over 2,800 people, mostly women and children, out of poverty through our work with Sama Source. We're doing some work um, here in the U.S. with Save the Children and uh, Early Childhood Education, which has been proven to be one of the most effective ways to break the cycle of poverty. We sponsor some gals through another organization called She's the First, and we're very fierce supporters of women and girls through our work with the UN and the Malala Fund, which aims to ensure that every child in the world has access to education. You know, Darren, one of my favorite quotes is actually from Nelson Mandela when he said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And I believe that at my core. So that's why we're so excited about what we do. And I'm so excited that we've built it this way, because again, when we're aware of what's happening around the planet and how innocent people are struggling, for me, it's it's just a travesty not to do something about it, not to be able to use who we are and what we have the ability to create to lift other people up. So now, uh, Marie, when most people think about giving back, they they think of a monetary gift of some kind, like a donation. And personally, I think that actually is one of the more limiting um ways to contribute, although there's lots of organizations that certainly need uh, financial support, but there are many other ways to make a contribution and uh, make a difference. Part of how you make your mark in the world is sharing your knowledge and, and experience. So let's dig into that knowledge bank a little bit and share some of that wealth. Through your journey from bartender and magazine staff writer and such to well-known and highly respected expert author and the person that you are today, 
What do you think has been the single biggest lesson that you've learned and, and how did it come about? This is actually a lesson, Darren, I learned from my mom when I was a very young girl. I come from a blue collar, hard working family. Uh, my mom was one of those folks who grew up in poverty herself. So when she had her family, it was very, very important to her to figure out how to stretch a dollar around a block. And I'm sure many people listening can relate to that. So I would come home and my mom would always cut out, you know, those little purchase confirmations. If you collected like five or six of them, you can mail them in and get whether a recipe book or you could get something for free. She was really, really into that. So we drink orange juice and my mom had collected all of these proofs of purchases from Tropicana and she mailed out and she got this amazing little Tropicana orange radio. It was a tiny little plastic thing, AM, FM, has this little straw coming out of the top with a red and white stripes on it. And I just remember my mom would kind of walk around the house and she'd be listening to the news and cleaning and she'd always take this little radio everywhere she went. And I would come home from school sometimes and I would see my mom and we'd walk into the bathroom and the bathroom was basically demolitioned. You know, like the tiles were everywhere. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what happened? Mom, what are you doing? She's like, oh, well, that, you know, we needed to really fix the bathroom. There was a leak. And I'm like, well, shouldn't you call somebody to help? And she's like, this ain't rocket science. I can do this. I'm not paying somebody, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever it was. We don't have that kind of money. I'm going to do it myself. I remember another time coming home from school and seeing my mom on the roof and she was fixing the roof. And I was terrified. You know, you see your mom on the top of a house. And I'm like, Mom, what are you doing up there? And she's like, oh, we had a leak. I'm like, shouldn't you be calling someone? She's like, nah, it's really not that big of a deal. It's, it's really not rocket science. You can do this. And I'm just, I'm going to do it. And we're going to save money. So anyway, one day I come home on the kitchen table. My mom's treasured Tropicana radio is in pieces. I walk in and I was like, what happened? I know she loved this thing. I see the radio. I'm like, did it break? What's going on? And she's like, yeah, you know, it stopped working. And I was like, well, what are you doing? She's like, I'm putting it back together. I said, well, how do you know how to do this? And you have to get, Darren, this is pre-internet, <laughs> right? Yeah. There was no internet to Google things or anything like that back then. And she says, you know what, Marie? It's not rocket science. Everything is figure outable. And that idea that we can figure anything out if we're determined if we have the heart, if we're willing to put in the sweat and just play and, you know, just take things apart and try and put them back together. That was a lesson that just was embedded in my psyche and in my soul. And it has served me. And it's one of the things that throughout my career, when I was bartending, when I was trying to get out of debt, when I was feeling so insecure about being so young and not knowing what the heck I was doing and fumbling around in the dark and feeling like total schizophrenic, to be honest with you, of, you know, loving hip hop and teaching dance to people in Dubai and then going, well, wait, I want to be this leader in personal development. I love spirituality and I love marketing. I would always come back to this idea that everything is figure outable. And if there's something that you want to create, if there's something that you want to see come to life in this world, don't worry if you don't have experience. Don't worry if you don't have resources. Don't worry if you don't have the knowledge. You can absolutely figure it out. Well, speaking of everything is figure outable, one of the things that I love about you, Marie, is that you are hyper-focused on personal development, especially your own. I've heard you say more than a few times that you're learning this or you're researching that. Walk us through your habits that help you continually learn and grow. I am obsessed, Darren, with reading and learning. I do it every day. I do it every day, everywhere I go, whether I'm at the beach, I'm waiting online, if I'm waking up, before I go to bed, you name it. So 
I'm almost always surrounded by a stack of books and my journal. And at any given time, I'm in the middle of like three to four books and audio programs and video programs or articles I'm reading. And I remember a couple of years ago, I remember thinking, you know, I'm kind of an addict. <laughs> I'm kind of an <laughs> addict when it comes to personal development. And I was judging myself and I said, oh, I should really slow down. And they said, you know what? Screw that. I love this stuff. I love it, love it, love it. This is my life's work. So the habit really is insatiable curiosity and awe because I continuously walk around my life. I'm so curious about how things work. I'm so curious about the work that other people are doing and things that they have figured out and studies they're, you know, working on and findings that they're uncovering. And then I'm always in awe. Like I'm just in awe of almost everything in my life. So I think those two traits, you know, kind of actionable traits to be insatiably curious and to always be in awe of what's happening around you. And then, of course, to feed yourself great information. That That's really the habits that help me continuously learn. So along that line, here's a just an interesting kind of side question. You you are a, uh, become a standout female voice in an industry that, let's be honest, is pretty saturated by uh, males. Give us some insight to what steps you took or, or goals that you set to help you succeed swimming against the current, so to speak. You know, in the beginning, Darren, I actually had zero attention on my gender because I was so insecure about being so young. You know, like as I said, as a 23-year-old life coach, I was part of me was rolling my eyes at myself. And I didn't encounter a lot of resistance or friction in terms of male-female energy or a little bit of sexism until years later. And I have to tell you, um, I still battle that to this day. I had an encounter yesterday where I was just like, really? <laughs> you know, there's one story that I want to tell really fast because uh, it really there was a lesson in there that I think can help anyone who feels like they are kind of swimming against the current, so to speak. When I first started our program that's called B-School, Online Business School for Modern Entrepreneurs, I was really excited to get the word out there. And it was brand new. You know, it's been in existence now for um, over six years. So this was kind of my first time out of the gate. And I was going to like a big marketing and networking conference. And I was so psyched. And I know everyone listening, you guys have probably been to those conferences. You have your big binder, right? And you're wearing that kind of placard around your neck that says your name and where you're from and your business. And I was getting ready to go up to one of the first sessions in the morning, you know, bright eyed, cheery, ready to meet people. And I was on an escalator and a guy turned around that was in front of me and he said, uh, oh, hey, you know, what's your name? What do you do? And I started telling him about this project I was working on and bringing to life called B-School. And he looked at me and he said, really? He's like, do you actually think you're going to make money with that? Do, do you have a, a rich husband who's bankrolling you? And Darren you know, I'm from Jersey. It took everything in me not to deck this guy, but I think I felt so, it was like the gong shot. Like I, I was so shocked that someone, you know, just a few years ago actually had that perspective. It took everything in me not to throw him off the friggin' escalator. But what it did was something really valuable for me because that put down really became fuel that fired me up to make my company even more successful. You know, there's that part in me, and I'm not saying that it's right, but some of us have it, that if other people put you down or they underestimate you based on your gender, based on your color, based on your experience, based on your weight, based on your economics or your education or the way that you look, and when people underestimate you, for some of us, and this is certainly true for me, it gets me fired up. (laughs) 
it makes me want to work 10 times harder to prove that D-bag completely wrong. So, you know, that was kind of how I've taken any time that people have uh, underestimated me or kind of put me in this corner or thought because what we do is fun and there's a comical element and I'm very comfortable in my own skin that I must not know my stuff, that I must not be a force to be reckoned with. And I just laugh and go, well, just watch me. I'm going to let my results and my actions speak a lot louder than your limited expectations. Yeah, most of the great achievers that uh, you and I both know and know of have definitely turned their fight into fuel, and it's uh, what catapulted them to, to great heights. So it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. All right, there is a lot of good stuff that we just heard in that interview, but I want to focus real quickly on the two major points of that interview that I think we can take away and apply to our own life. The first one is when she talked about the biggest lesson that her mom taught her in life, and that is everything is figure outable, right? Everything is fixable. Everything can be solved. So let me ask you this. Do you think you're a good problem solver? And I think for the most part, people will just instinctually say yes. So then the follow-up question is, well, why aren't you solving your own problems? And I know some problems are really, really big and really, really complicated and need uh, you need the help of others. But even those big problems can be broken down, figured out, just like her mother broke down the radio and kind of pieced it back together. Uh, it can be broken down into little steps and figured out. But the large, overwhelming majority of our problems are, are more like small and annoying and they've just been with us for so long that we just we, we get to know them and we don't realize that maybe maybe they're actually pretty easy to fix. So just keep that in mind. That's going to be huge for this show, right? Everything is figure outable. The next thing you need to take away from that interview is her proclamation to start before you are ready. Start before you are ready. And to put an explanation point on that concept of starting before you are ready, I'm going to play you another quick clip. And this is an audio clip from a movie called The Hunt for Red October, circa 1990. <laughs> it's funny. Not only is my, my music stuck in the past, also my uh, movie selection is stuck in the, uh, the, the past as well. But this is a clip where CIA analyst Jack Ryan is yanked out from his desk jockey position in the CIA, and he's put on board an American submarine. And the reason he's put on this submarine is because he knows the ways and the tendencies of a Russian sub-captain named Ramius. Now, Captain Ramius, played by Sean Connery, is in charge of a nuclear Russian submarine that has stealth capabilities that can barely be detected by sonar. So this Russian submarine is a rogue submarine. The Russian government doesn't know where it's at. The American government doesn't know where it's at. And the Russian government wants the submarine blown up because they don't want this awesome technology to fall in the hands of the Americans. The American government also wants the submarine blown up because they don't want a nuclear submarine within striking distance of the United States. Now, CIA analyst Jack Ryan thinks that the Russian captain simply wants to defect to America, and that causes all sorts of tension. So after I play this clip, I'm going to explain to you how this ties into the concept of starting before you're ready. And in particular, we are going to now attach a name to that concept, and it's going to be called a Crazy Ivan. All right, let's roll the clip. Captain, I have to talk to you. No, no. Tommy, make your depth 1,200 feet, 20 degrees down angle. All right, Captain. Farewell. Sonar con. You got him yet, Jonesy? Very faint, sir. Hold on. 
Yes, sir. Contact Typhoon 7 on bearing 250, right where he's supposed to be. Any signs alert to our presence? No, sir. Operating as before. Come left 265. Bring us up behind him quietly, Tommy. Aye, aye, Captain. Talking officer, make your depth 500 feet. Captain, please listen to me. Two minutes, that's all. Plot, time to intercept this track. Four minutes, Captain. Very well, Mr. Ryan. Two minutes. I understand that message. It makes perfect sense. Look at the situation. Ramius intends to defect. The Russians know this, which is why they've been trying to sink him for the past two days, but they haven't been able to. So they're Captain, trying to... I have a firing solution. Very well. Captain, you have to listen to me. The Russians will stop at nothing to prevent Ramius from defecting. They are desperate. They've invented this story that he's crazy because they need our help to sink him before he can safely contact us. Weapons control. I want full safeties. We're so close. I don't want those fish coming back at us. Full safety, aye, sir. Captain, I know this man. Has he made any crazy Ivans? What difference does that make? Because the next one will be to starboard. Why, because his last was to port? No, because he always goes to starboard in the bottom half of the hour. Blood tubes one and two assigned presets. Warm up the weapons. Captain, there has to be some way you can establish contact without violating your orders. I'm telling you, he wants to defect. Mr. Thompson, call Chief Watson to the con with his sidearm. Thompson, our signal to noise ratio is dropping. Possible aspect change in target. Concur possible target state based on bearing rate. Consul, our crazy Ivan. Captain. Captain, he's turning. Which way is he turning, Jones? To the starboard, sir. Give the man a chance. All back full. Again? I said all back full. Back full, I sir. It's back full. You out of your mind? Just send it. Tell me one thing. How'd you know he was going to go to starboard? I didn't. I had a 50-50 chance and I needed a break. Sorry. Okay, so there you go. That is the concept of a crazy Ivan. So give me a second to kind of explain how I think that ties into starting before you're ready. So the crazy Ivan looks crazy to basically everyone. Submarines just going along and then all of a sudden it just stops in its tracks and turns around. Now if you're observing that from the outside, especially if you don't know anything about submarines, it would look really strange for that to take place. But to the captain of that sub, it makes complete sense in that circumstance. You're doing that to see if there's any other subs following you that your instruments may have missed. You turned around, all of a sudden the ship that's following you can't slow down in time, they're making noise, it's picked up by sonar, and boom. So what seems to be something that's somewhat insane and crazy from the outside actually has a really good purpose. So how that ties into starting before you're ready, it's really the concept of analysis paralysis. Right, You've got a goal, you think you want to do something, but all your ducks have to be just lined up perfectly you know, I can't start till this happens. Well, as soon as this takes place, then I'll be able to do it. You, you start to make excuses for yourself. Uh, the more you think about something, sometimes you, you get apprehensive. And don't get me wrong, there is a value in preparing and analyzing. But at some point, you got to take the plunge. And that's where the crazy Ivan comes into as a very valuable tool. 
And it also ties into one of my favorite quotes by Mark Twain. He said, Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. And Mark Twain is basically saying, if you're doing the same thing that everyone else is doing, (laughs) there's a high probability that you're doing something wrong, right? It also ties back into that concept from the last episode we talked about uh, with the airplane, right? The default position of an airplane is to be on the ground. Gravity takes over and that sucker is grounded. It takes fuel and effort and skill to get that plane up in the air and to get it flying. So to avoid the gravity of life from taking over, you need to do some crazy Ivans. Something from the outside looks kind of ridiculous. It may not make sense to people, but it serves a purpose. Namely, it gets you out of your comfort zone and pushes the limits of what you're truly capable of. So let me tell you real quickly about a few crazy Ivans I've done in my life, uh, both to the good and to the bad, and how taking some chances can really pay some huge dividends for you. So I have high cholesterol, and a few years ago, um, my test on my cholesterol was in the upper 200s. I think it was pushing 300. Me, being the stubborn person I am, realized that most of this was probably a lifestyle choice, and I wanted to do everything in my power to lower my cholesterol on my own without medication. And I found out my cholesterol was high from a, a wellness test at work, and then the guy at work basically said, yeah, you got high cholesterol. You know, he said you want to avoid fat and various things. And, and one of the things I remember he said is you, you should avoid cheese. And I was like, oh man, I love cheese. I eat nothing but cheese. I eat cheese all the time. <laughs> I think I'm part mouse. So I told myself, I did a crazy Ivan. I said, I'm not going to eat any cheese for a full year. And I set that goal and I told a couple of people about it and they, they thought I was crazy and um, didn't make sense to them. And I even had a a final meal on the day before I started out. I had a huge helping of cheese, like four cheese lasagna. So I made a like a big deal out of it. And I think I I don't think I made the whole year. I think I made it to about ten months. Got my cholesterol test results after that. Barely moved the needle. So that wasn't exactly a successful crazy Ivan. But what it did do is get me thinking. And at the time, I, you know, I sort of worked out a little bit here and there, nothing huge. Um, I didn't really watch a whole lot what I was eating, but I for sure wasn't overweight. And I talked to some of the people around me, I got the same test, and their cholesterol was way, way lower. So on paper, you know, the wellness doctors are saying like they're healthier than me, which seemed a bit odd to me since I could make it up a flight of steps without breathing hard, but somehow they they were healthier than me just because their cholesterol number was lower. It just, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I do what I usually do is I find an audio book on the subject and I did some studying and I found a whole lot of information about cholesterol that I didn't know in the past. And, And let's just say that things ain't always as it seems when it comes to those numbers. And due to my own personal high cholesterol numbers, the subject is sort of near and dear to my heart, similar to, uh, what back pain was for me in the extra credit of, uh, episode nine. So on this episode, if you happen to struggle with high cholesterol or know someone that takes a statin drug or you take a statin drug yourself, I've got some good extra credits for you at the end of this show. So anyway, the no cheese crazy Ivan really didn't uh, pan out any really huge results. Another one that didn't work out too well is I had I had just finished uh, listening to the slide edge and I was like, man, I want to I want to exercise regularly, but I, I don't want to do it like spend a whole lot of time. So 
I got this crazy idea in my head that I was going to buy this really fancy home gym and do like three sets of an exercise every day. You know, it'd take me like five minutes. So that was like the definition of slight edge, you know, a little bit at a time every day. So I was like, yeah, you know, I'll work out five minutes a day lifting weights. I'll do just a hair of cardio um, and all that stuff. And actually, it, it wasn't all that bad of a plan in concept except that I spent a whole lot of money on this really, really fancy uh, machine. And it happened right at the time when my friend convinced me to give CrossFit one more try. This is like the fourth attempt at CrossFit. And wouldn't you know it, this is the time that stuck. Now, now, why did it stick? Well, because I had some of these other things that we've talked about on the podcast, right? The same reason that this New Year's is going to be different for you is because you have now have the tools to succeed. You have the mindset to succeed. And that's what the difference was for me when I attempted CrossFit for the fourth time. It had actually stuck. So, uh, that's good. I was still exercising, but what's bad is I have a piece of weight equipment that I hardly ever use. So anyway, those are two crazy Ivans that didn't work out really that well for me. But let me share with you a handful of crazy Ivans that worked really, really well. And I've mentioned, uh, I think, most of these in one way, shape, or form in, in prior podcasts. But the first crazy Ivan that I, I talked about really on this podcast was uh, no TV. All right. So you know, I'm tired at work. I've got this thing going on and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try to not watch TV for one week. I mean, nothing, no sports, no anything. And it turned out to be amazing. So then one week turned into two weeks, two weeks into three weeks. And then pretty much now as it stands now, I hardly watch any TV. I probably honestly watch maybe one movie per month and maybe two sporting events during football season maybe so if you add that up that's probably seven or eight hours per month like max that i'm watching tv most people get that much tv in one maybe two nights so that was a huge win for me because now i'm using all that extra time to do other things that that provide real benefit to my life and my family's life but if you tell someone that you don't watch tv guess what they're gonna think that's a little crazy and that's okay the other crazy Ivan that I've done recently is getting up really early. Now, let me explain how this is crazy. So I played the episode of The Miracle Morning, and you know I was getting up at 5, 5.30. And one of the clips I played as I was making this show was the interview with the hip-hop preacher. And he, he says he gets up at 3.30 in the morning. And I think I even mentioned this on the podcast. I was like, man, that's crazy. And then after I post the show, I'm thinking about that, you know, two, three, four, four weeks go by. I'm like, man, maybe that's not so crazy. I'm going to give that a try. Now, trust me, (laughs) if people find out you're waking up at 3.30 in the morning, they will call you crazy. But you know what? I tried it once and it was kind of painful, but I got up. I was able to do my morning routine and then I was able to go to uh, the early class for CrossFit. And that's at like five in the morning. So I'm done like 6.15, 6.30. And I've already exercised for the day, got my whole morning routine out of the way, and I'm getting into work early. And that was pretty cool. Sure, <laughs> I was dead tired. And that night, I think I went to bed at like 8 p.m. But here it is three months later, I'm probably getting up that early, uh, three, maybe four times per week. And it's not all that painful anymore. 
And again, I know people are going to call me what? What they're going to call me? They're going to call me crazy. But the things I get done on those days, it's unbelievable. The production is just through the roof, which then ties into my personal fulfillment. I get all the stuff done that I need to get done. And then I have time for things like making this podcast. And what did it cost me? My favorite guilty pleasures on TV and getting up a little bit earlier. Uh, That's a pretty easy cost. For the benefit. So anyway, you, you get the concept of a crazy Ivan and you really should start to think about how you can do some of those in your life. Because you'll notice even the things that I failed, the cheese really didn't lower my cholesterol, the, the buying the weight machine, I really didn't use it. But the two others really paid dividends, right? No TV, getting up early. But the catch is when you start, when you start a crazy Ivan, you don't know exactly which one is going to get legs and which one is going to fall on its face. But what you do learn is you start to become what we talked about earlier, right? That that pro quarterback that is also good at golf, right? Some of those skills start to translate over. You do a couple things that seem to be crazy from the outside looking in, and then you start to, to grow your comfort zone. You start to find out what you're capable of. You start to not listen or care what other people think. Yeah, sure, you can call me crazy, but I'm getting stuff done. I'm striving for my goals. And it feels pretty good. So sometimes you do need to be a little crazy. Just like we heard in that opening motivational clip, sometimes it's good to be obsessed. All right, so there you go. We've talked about everything is figure outable. You need to start before you're ready, and Crazy Ivans can help you do that. Now we're going to start to put that final piece of the puzzle together for developing your processes. And more importantly, we'll talk about how to perfect that process. How to perfect the process of bridging your knowledge gap and turning that into action. And it's simpler than you think. And to help make my point, I'm going to play a clip from The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. That's right. Sometimes a simple piece of paper and a pen can do amazing things. And I'm going to let this book make that case for me. This clip will hop around a little bit. Um, He's going to talk about how powerful checklists can be when it comes to flying a plane, how powerful it can be for doctors performing surgery, and even how it can be amazing for something as seemingly routine as running a restaurant and serving food. And then afterwards, I'll talk a little bit more about how you can wrap this all up and start to practice it. Here's the clip. The Checklist. On October 30, 1935, at Wright Airfield in Dayton, Ohio, the U.S. Army Air Corps held a flight competition for airplane manufacturers vying to build the military's next-generation long-range bomber. It wasn't supposed to be much of a competition. In early evaluations, the Boeing Corporation's gleaming aluminum alloy Model 299 had trounced the designs of Martin and Douglas. Boeing's plane could carry five times as many bombs as the Army had requested. It could fly faster than previous bombers and almost twice as far. A Seattle newspaper man who had glimpsed the plane on a test flight over his city called it the Flying Fortress, and the name stuck. The flight competition, according to the military historian Philip Meilinger, was regarded as a mere formality. The Army planned to order at least 65 of the aircraft. A small crowd of Army brass and manufacturing executives watched as the Model 299 test plane taxied onto the runway. It was sleek and impressive, with a 103-foot wingspan and four engines jutting out from the wings rather than the usual two. The plane roared down the tarmac, lifted off smoothly, and climbed sharply to 300 feet. Then it stalled, turned on one wing, and crashed in a fiery explosion. Two of the five crew members died, including the pilot, Major Ployer P. Hill. 
An investigation revealed that nothing mechanical had gone wrong. The crash had been due to pilot error, the report said. Substantially more complex than previous aircraft, the new plane required the pilot to attend to the four engines, each with its own oil-fuel mix, the retractable landing gear, the wing flaps, electric trim tabs that needed adjustment to maintain stability at different airspeeds, and constant-speed propellers, whose pitch had to be regulated with hydraulic controls, among other features. While doing all this, Hill had forgotten to release a new locking mechanism on the elevator and rudder controls. The Boeing model was deemed, as a newspaper put it, too much airplane for one man to fly. The Army Air Corps declared Douglas's smaller design the winner. Boeing nearly went bankrupt. Still, the Army purchased a few aircraft from Boeing as test planes, and some insiders remained convinced that the aircraft was flyable. So a group of test pilots got together and considered what to do. What they decided not to do was almost as interesting as what they actually did. They did not require Model 299 pilots to undergo longer training. It was hard to imagine having more experience and expertise than Major Hill, who had been the Air Corps Chief of Flight Testing. Instead, they came up with an ingeniously simple approach. They created a pilot's checklist. Its mere existence indicated how far aeronautics had advanced. In the early years of flight, getting an aircraft into the air might have been nerve-wracking, but it was hardly complex. Using a checklist for takeoff would no more have occurred to a pilot than to a driver backing a car out of the garage. But flying this new plane was too complicated to be left to the memory of any one person, however expert. The test pilots made their list simple, brief, and to the point. Short enough to fit on an index card, with step-by-step -step checks for takeoff, flight, landing, and taxiing. It had the kind of stuff that all pilots know to do. They check that the brakes are released, that the instruments are set, that the door and windows are closed, that the elevator controls are unlocked. Dumb stuff. You wouldn't think it would make that much difference. But with the checklist in hand, the pilots went on to fly the Model 299 a total of 1.8 million miles without one accident. The Army ultimately ordered almost 13,000 of the aircraft, which it dubbed the B-17. And because flying the behemoth was now possible, the Army gained a decisive air advantage in the Second World War, enabling its devastating bombing campaign across Nazi Germany. All of Boeing's aviation checklists, the company issues over 100 per year, either new or revised, are put together meticulously. Borman's Flight Operations Group is a checklist factory, and the experts in it have learned a thing or two over the years about how to make the lists work. There are good checklists and bad, Borman explained. Bad checklists are vague and imprecise. They are too long. They are hard to use. They are impractical. They are made by desk jockeys with no awareness of the situations in which they are to be deployed. They treat the people using the tools as dumb and try to spell out every single step. They turn people's brains off rather than turn them on. Good checklists, on the other hand, are precise. They are efficient, to the point, and easy to use even in the most difficult situations. They do not try to spell out everything. A checklist cannot fly a plane. Instead, they provide reminders of only the most critical and important steps, the ones that even the highly skilled professionals using them could miss. Good checklists are, above all, practical. So you want to keep the list short by focusing on what he called the killer items, the steps that are most dangerous to skip and sometimes overlooked nonetheless. The wording should be simple and exact, Borman went on. No matter how careful we might be, no matter how much thought we put in, a checklist has to be tested in the real world, which is inevitably more complicated than expected. First drafts always fall apart, he said, and one needs to study how, make changes, and keep testing until the checklist works consistently. In a complex environment, experts are up against two main difficulties. 
The first is the fallibility of human memory and attention, especially when it comes to mundane routine matters that are easily overlooked under the strain of more pressing events. When you've got a patient throwing up and an upset family member asking you what's going on, it can be easy to forget that you have not checked her pulse. Faulty memory and distraction are a particular danger in what engineers call all-or-none processes, whether running to the store to buy ingredients for a cake, preparing an airplane for takeoff, or evaluating a sick person in the hospital. If you miss just one key thing, you might as well not have made the effort at all. A further difficulty, just as insidious, is that people can lull themselves into skipping steps even when they remember them. In complex processes, after all, certain steps don't always matter. Perhaps the elevator controls on airplanes are usually unlocked and a check is pointless most of the time. Perhaps measuring all four vital signs uncovers a worrisome issue in only one out of 50 patients. This has never been a problem before, people say. Until one day, it is. In 2001, though, a critical care specialist at Johns Hopkins Hospital named Peter Pronovost decided to give a doctor checklist a try. He didn't attempt to make the checklist encompass everything ICU teams might need to do in a day. He decided to tackle just one of their hundreds of potential tasks, the one that nearly killed Anthony DiFilippo. Central line infections. On a sheet of plain paper, he plotted out the steps to take in order to avoid infections when putting in the central line. Doctors are supposed to, one, wash their hands with soap, two, clean the patient's skin with chlorhexidine antiseptic, three, put sterile drapes over the entire patient, four, wear a mask, hat, sterile gown, and gloves, and five, put a sterile dressing over the insertion site once the line is in. Check, 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 check. These steps are no-brainers. They have been known and taught for years. So it seems silly to make a checklist for something so obvious. Still, Pronovost asked the nurses in his ICU to observe the doctors for a month as they put lines into patients and record how often they carried out each step. In more than a third of patients, they skipped at least one. The next month, he and his team persuaded the Johns Hopkins Hospital Administration to authorize nurses to stop doctors if they saw them skipping a step on the checklist. Nurses were also to ask the doctors each day whether any lines ought to be removed so as not to leave them in longer than necessary. This was revolutionary. Nurses have always had their ways of nudging a doctor into doing the right thing, ranging from the gentle reminder, um, did you forget to put on your mask, doctor, to more forceful methods. I have had a nurse body check me when she thought I hadn't put enough drapes on a patient. But many nurses aren't sure whether this is their place or whether a given measure is worth a confrontation. Does it really matter whether a patient's legs are draped for a line going into the chest? The new rule made it clear. If doctors didn't follow every step precisely, the nurses would have backup from the administration to intervene. For a year afterward, Pranavost and his colleagues monitored what happened. The results were so dramatic that they weren't sure whether to believe them. The 10-day line infection rate went from 11% to zero. So they followed patients for 15 more months. Only two line infections occurred during the entire period. They calculated that in this one hospital, the checklist had prevented 43 infections and 8 deaths and saved $2 million in costs. Pranavost recruited more colleagues, and they tested some more checklists in his Johns Hopkins ICU. One aimed to ensure that nurses observed patients for pain at least once every four hours and provided timely pain medication. This reduced from 41% to 3%, the likelihood of a patient's enduring untreated pain. They tested a checklist for patients on mechanical ventilation, making sure, for instance, that doctors prescribed antacid medication 
to prevent stomach ulcers and that the head of each patient's bed was propped up at least 30 degrees to stop oral secretions from going into the windpipe. The proportion of patients not receiving the recommended care dropped from 70% to 4%. The occurrence of pneumonias fell by a quarter, and 21 fewer patients died than in the previous year. The researchers found that simply having the doctors and nurses in the ICU create their own checklists for what they thought should be done each day improved the consistency of care to the point that the average length of patient stay in intensive care dropped by half. Pranavost also insisted that the participating hospitals assign to each unit a senior hospital executive who would visit at least once a month, hear the staff's complaints, and help them solve problems. The executives were reluctant. They normally lived in meetings, worrying about strategy and budgets. They weren't used to venturing into patient territory and didn't feel they belonged there. In some places, they encountered hostility, but their involvement proved crucial. In the first month, the executives discovered that chlorhexidine soap, shown to reduce line infections, was available in less than a third of the ICUs. This was a problem only an executive could solve. Within weeks, every ICU in Michigan had a supply of the soap. Teams also complained to the hospital officials that although the checklist required patients be fully covered with a sterile drape when lines were being put in, full-size drapes were often unavailable, so the officials made sure that drapes were stocked. Then they persuaded Aero International, one of the largest manufacturers of central lines, to produce a new kit that had both the drape and chlorhexidine in it. In December 2006, the Keystone Initiative published its findings in a landmark article in the New England Journal of Medicine. Within the first three months of the project, the central line infection rate in Michigan's ICUs decreased by 66%. Most ICUs, including the ones at Sinai Grace Hospital, cut their quarterly infection rate to zero. Michigan's infection rates fell so low that its average ICU outperformed 90% of ICUs nationwide. In the Keystone Initiative's first 18 months, the hospital saved an estimated $175 million in costs and more than 1,500 lives. The successes have been sustained for several years now, all because of a stupid little checklist. I ran my theory about the necessity of checklists by Jody Adams, the chef and owner of Rialto, one of my favorite restaurants in Boston. In the early 1990s, Food & Wine magazine named her one of America's 10 best new chefs, and in 1997, she won a James Beard Foundation Best Chef Award, which is the Oscar for food. Rialto is frequently mentioned on national best restaurant lists, most recently, Esquire magazines. Her focus is on regional Italian cuisine, though with a distinctive take. Adams is self-taught, an anthropology major at Brown University. She never went to culinary school, but I had a thing for food, as she puts it, and she went to work in restaurants, learning her way from chopping onions to creating her own style of cooking. The level of skill and craft she has achieved in her restaurant is daunting. Moreover, she has sustained it for many years now, I was interested in how she did it. I understood perfectly well how the Burger Kings and Taco Bells of the world operate. They are driven by tightly prescribed protocol. They provide tailorized assembly line food. But in great restaurants, the food is ever-evolving, refined, and individual. Nevertheless, they have to produce an extraordinary level of excellence day after day, year after year, for one to three hundred people per night. I had my theory of how such perfectionism is accomplished, but was it true? Adams invited me in to see. I spent one Friday evening perched on a stool in Rialto's long and narrow kitchen amid the bustle, the shouting, the grill flaming on one side, the deep fryer sizzling on another. Adams and her staff served 150 people in five hours. 
That night, they made a roasted tomato soup with sweated onions and garlic. Squid ink ravioli filled with a salt cod brandade on a bed of squash blossoms and lobster sauce. Grilled bluefish with corn relish. Heirloom tomatoes and pickled peppers. Slow-roasted duck marinated in soy sauce, balsamic vinegar, mustard, rosemary, and garlic, and three dozen other mouth-watering dishes. Sitting there, I saw remarkable expertise. Half of Adams's staff had been to culinary school. Few had less than a decade of experience. They each had a kitchen specialty. There was a pastry chef, baker, grill chef, fry cook, dessert chef, sous chef, sommelier. You get the picture. Through the years, they had perfected their technique. I couldn't fathom the subtleties of most of what they did. Though I am a surgeon, they wouldn't let me anywhere near their knives. Jay, the pasta chef, showed me how to heat butter properly and tell by sight when gnocchi were perfectly boiled. Adams showed me how much a pinch of salt really was. People celebrate the technique and creativity of cooking. Chefs are personalities today, and their daring culinary exploits are what make the television cooking show so popular. But as I saw at Rialto, it's discipline, uncelebrated and untelevised, that keeps the kitchen clicking. And sure enough, checklists were at the center of that discipline. First there was the recipe, the most basic checklist of all. Every dish had one. The recipes were typed out, put in clear plastic sleeves, and placed at each station. Adams was religious about her staffs using them. Even for her, she said, following the recipe is essential to making food of consistent quality over time. Tacked to a bulletin board beside the dessert station was what Adams called her kitchen notes, emails to the staff of her brief observations about the food. The most recent was from 12.50 the previous night. Fritters, more herbs, more garlic, more punch, it said. Corn silk in corn. Creamed corn side on oval plates, not square. Mushrooms, more shallots, garlic, and marsala. Use the recipes. The staff didn't always love following the recipes. You make the creamed corn a few hundred times and you believe you have it down. But that's when things begin to slip, Adam said. The recipes themselves were not necessarily static. All the ones I saw had scribbled modifications in the margins, many of them improvements provided by staff. Sometimes there would be a wholesale revamp. One new dish they were serving was a split whole lobster in cognac and fish broth reduction with little neck clams and chorizo. The dish is Adams's take on a famous Julia Child recipe. Before putting a dish on the menu, however, she always has the kitchen staff make a few test runs and some problems emerged. Her recipe called for splitting a lobster and then sautéing it in olive oil but the results proved too variable. Too often the lobster meat was either overcooked or undercooked. The sauce was also made to order, but it took too long for the 8 to 10 minute turnaround that customers expect. So she and two of her chefs re-engineered the dish. They decided to make the sauce in advance and parboil the lobster ahead of time as well. On repeated test runs, the lobster came out perfectly. The recipe was rewritten. There was also a checklist for every customer. When an order was placed up front, it was printed out on a slip back in the kitchen. The ticket specified the dishes ordered, the table number, the seat number, any preferences specified by the customer or noted in a database from previous visits. Food allergies, for instance, or how the steak should be cooked. Or whether this was a special occasion like a birthday or a visit from a VIP whom Adams needed to go out and say hello to. The sous chef, who serves as a kind of field officer for operations, read the tickets off as they came in. Fire mushrooms, fire moats, labo on hold, steak very well done, no gluten, on hold. Fire meant cook it now. On hold meant it was a second course. Labo was the lobster. The steak needed to be cooked all the way through and the customer had a gluten allergy. A readback was expected to confirm that the line cooks had heard the order right. Fire mushrooms, fire moats, said one. Labo on hold, said the seafood cook. Steak very well done, no gluten on hold, said the grill chef. As in the construction world, however, not everything could be anticipated and reduced to a recipe. 
And so Adams, too, had developed a communication checklist to ensure people recognized and dealt with unexpected problems as a team. At 5 o'clock, half an hour before opening, the staff holds what she calls the powwow. Everyone gathers in the kitchen for a quick check to discuss unanticipated issues and concerns, the unpredictable. The night I was there, they review the reservation count, two menu changes, how to fill in for a sick staff member, and a sweet 16 party with 20 girls who were delayed and going to arrive in the midst of the dinner rush. Everyone was given a chance to speak, and they made plans for what to do. Of course, this still couldn't guarantee everything would go right. There remained plenty of sources of uncertainty and imperfection. A soup might be plated too early and allowed to cool. A quail might have too little sauce. A striped bass might come off the grill too dry. So Adams had one final check in place. Every plate had to be reviewed by either her or the sous chef before it left the kitchen for the dining room. They made sure the food looked the way it should, checked it against the order ticket, gave it a sniff or with a clean spoon, maybe even a taste. I counted the dishes as they went by. At least 5% were sent back. This calamari has to be fried more, the sous chef told the fry cook. We want more of a golden brown. Later, I got to try some of the results. I had the fried olives, the grilled clams, the summer succotash, and a local farm green salad. I also had the lobster. The food was incredible. I left at midnight with my stomach full and my brain racing. Even here, in one of our most particularized and craft-driven enterprises, in a way, Adams's cooking is more art than science, checklists were required. Everywhere I looked, the evidence seemed to point to the same conclusion. There seemed no field or profession where checklists might not help. We have an opportunity before us, not just in medicine, but in virtually any endeavor. Even the most expert among us can gain from searching out the patterns of mistakes and failures and putting a few checks in place. But will we do it? Are we ready to grab onto the idea? It is far from clear. In the money business, everyone looks for an edge. If someone is doing well, people pounce like starved hyenas to find out how. Almost every idea for making even slightly more money, investing in Internet companies, buying tranches of sliced-up mortgages, whatever, get sucked up by the giant maw almost instantly. Every idea, that is, except one. Checklists. I asked Cook how much interest others have had in what he has been doing these past two years. Zero, he said. Or actually, that's not quite true. People have been intensely interested in what he's been buying and how, but the minute the word checklist comes out of his mouth, they disappear. Even in his own firm, he's found it a hard sell. I got pushback from everyone. It took my guys months to finally see the value, he said. To this day, his partners still don't all go along with his approach and don't use the checklist in their decisions when he's not involved. I find it amazing other investors have not even bothered to try, he said. Some have asked. None have done it. We don't like checklists. They can be painstaking. They're not much fun. But I don't think the issue here is mere laziness. There's something deeper, more visceral going on when people walk away, not only from saving lives, but from making money. It somehow feels beneath us to use a checklist, an embarrassment. It runs counter to deeply held beliefs about how the truly great among us, those we aspire to be, handle situations of high stakes and complexity. The truly great are daring. They improvise. They do not have protocols and checklists. Maybe our idea of heroism needs updating. The fear people have about the idea of adherence to protocol is rigidity. They imagine mindless automatons, heads down in a checklist, incapable of looking out their windshield and coping with the real world in front of them. But what you find, when a checklist is well made, is exactly the opposite. The checklist gets the dumb stuff out of the way, the routines your brain shouldn't have to occupy itself with. Are the elevator controls set? 
Did the patient get her antibiotics on time? Did the managers sell all their shares? Is everyone on the same page here? And lets it rise above to focus on the hard stuff. Where should we land? The same can be said in numerous other fields. We don't study routine failures in teaching, in law, in government programs, in the financial industry, or elsewhere. We don't look for the patterns of our recurrent mistakes or devise and refine potential solutions for them. But we could, and this is the ultimate point. We are all plagued by failures, by missed subtleties, overlooked knowledge, and outright errors. For the most part, we have imagined that little can be done beyond working harder and harder to catch the problems and clean up after them. We are not in the habit of thinking the way the Army pilots did as they looked upon their shiny new Model 299 bomber, a machine so complex no one was sure human beings could fly it. They too could have decided just to try harder or to dismiss a crash as the failings of a weak pilot. Instead, they chose to accept their fallibilities. They recognized the simplicity and power of using a checklist. And so can we. Indeed, against the complexity of the world, we must. There is no other choice. When we look closely, we recognize the same balls being dropped over and over, even by those of great ability and determination. We know the patterns. We see the costs. It's time to try something else. Try a checklist. So that was an interesting comment to end what was a fascinating discussion on the power of a simple checklist, right? The concluding comment was basically, we rarely spend time studying our routine failures. So how does that look in everyday life? You know, I get home from work, the, the kids are screaming, uh, they're climbing all over me, they want to play, they're hungry, they want to eat, all this is going on at the same time. Sometimes my wife doesn't have food ready, and I know she feels bad for that, and then she takes that personally, and then she's frustrated because she doesn't know what to eat, because she has certain diet restrictions. So sometimes right after work, it's a little chaotic. And I can get frustrated, my wife can get frustrated, the kids feel like we're not paying attention to them. You know, how many times <laughs> does that have to happen before me being a big dummy? How many times do I have to see that play out time and time and time and time again before I think to myself, man, maybe there's a way to fix this. Maybe this is fixable. You know, am I a good problem solver? What can I do to rectify this situation? And imagine if you could do that with all the little problems you have in your life, right? You see the same thing that happens over and over again. You and your spouse fight about the same topic over and over again. Well, well what, what can be done to, to fix that? Well, in, in the case of the chaos right after work, a simple text message during the day to my wife talking about, hey, what are you thinking about dinner? What are the plans for tonight? All of a sudden, just a little communication in the middle of the day, away from the chaos, makes everything so much more easy. So guess what? That goes on my checklist. Because what are checklists for? They get the dumb stuff out of the way and out of your mind so you're free to focus on the things that you're truly good at and that you truly enjoy. I had another similar irritation trying to get my kids ready for school. They always seemed to be late. I had to nag and yell at them to get them out the door in time. They never knew where their backpacks were. They forget their snacks for school. They'd forget their homework folder. We'd be rushed. I'd feel late. You know, how many times does that have to happen before you think to yourself, hmm, maybe there is a better way to do that. So over a process of probably about two weeks, I really paid attention to what was going on and I tried to come up with a list to how to fix that situation. 
you know, some of the things were pick clothes out the night before school, make sure their bags are packed the night before school. They know where their homework is. I had to toy around with an intricate alarm system so the kids could get out of bed on their own. At first, I bought my daughter uh, an alarm clock that beeped really loud. I mean, it was a frozen Disney clock, so I thought it would be cool. My wife thought it would be cool, and it didn't work out the way we thought it would. My daughter hated it, so what did we do? We ended up buying uh, one of those gradual light alarm clocks that I mentioned on the Sleep Hack episode. And that worked like a charm. So the whole process took about two weeks to kind of work through that checklist, right? Just like when they say in in the book, you know, no checklist is perfect right off the bat. It needs to be tweaked and it needs to be tested in the real world. But I tell you what, once you get to that final conclusion, it's pretty awesome. And since this isn't like flying an airplane or performing surgery... Sometimes you can actually get rid of the checklist because you've you've made the process to the point where it works and everyone's memorized it. So that's the thing I really, really want you guys to take away. Always think about ways to continually improve a process to the point where it's no longer a problem because there is no problem that isn't fixable. And when you start to combine a lot of these concepts together, you get a really, really powerful arsenal of accomplishment. So one of the final things I want to leave you with is how to create a super duper simple checklist. And I'm going to try and describe this for you uh, right now, but I may not do a really good job of describing it. So I'm going to go ahead and in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to a YouTube video on on how to make this simple checklist. Uh, But basically you take a notebook tablet and you cut half of the the pages um, out and you leave maybe half of the notebook with full length pages And on the bottom half of the pages, you just keep a running to-do list of things you need to get done. And on the right side, you you write down some of your longer-term slight-edge goals. But on these tearaway papers that you use uh, once per day, this is where you write down your top two or three things only that you want to accomplish in a given day. And just like Eat That Frog, you plan ahead. You write down those top two or three tasks that are really, really important for you to get done. And that's your goal for that day. Just make sure you get through those three tasks. You can also have another checklist which has these dumb routine things that are good for you that you need to do that are really, really easy to forget. Like take your vitamins, mail any outstanding bills that you have due. You know, any little seemingly trivial thing that you you can think of is fair game for that checklist. So imagine if you start tying all these concepts together. You use a checklist, you're planning your day ahead and putting your top two or three tasks at the top of that list, all right? That's from Eat That Frog. And if you get all those checklists marked and completed, guess what? Then you put a big red X on your calendar. So now your red X hack isn't just one task, it's a whole set of tasks. And that's when you really start to gain some steam with your slight edge consistency. And as a matter of fact, that would be the perfect crazy Ivan. What if you, for the next year, had 12 straight months of red X's in which you completed your top two or three tasks every day without fail? What would your life look like if you simply got those two or three important tasks done consistently day in and day out? Sound crazy? I don't know. Maybe it is. But think of the benefit. It could quite possibly be your perfect year. 
So in the show notes, check out that YouTube video of that simple checklist and then continue to work on all those little problem points in your life. Anytime that you have an issue, try and work it out. See where the problem is and keep trying to tweak your systems until you correct that problem. Now, these checklists are actually pretty straightforward, especially when it comes to things like exercise or saving money or getting things done at your job. These are all relatively straightforward things. And I really want you to start now on your New Year's resolution, right? Do a few crazy Ivans. See what you're capable of. Give a, give a couple processes uh, a test run. Uh, work out some of the kinks so when January 1st rolls around, you can hit the ground running. And you can guarantee yourself that this year is going to be different than every other year because you're going to stick with it and you're going to do it amazingly. So that's your homework. Do a few crazy Ivans. Start to work on your checklist. Get some really, really good process improvement going on. And I'm going to take a few weeks off, right? The next episode will probably not be posted until after the new year. And at that time, we're going to take this bad boy up to level three. And I'm super excited about that. And since you won't hear from me for maybe three, possibly four weeks, I'm going to leave you with an extra jolt of motivation for you to ring in the new year. So enjoy this final clip. And if you're interested, stick around for extra credit. All right. See you around. Happy New Year. There is nothing as powerful as a changed mind. You can change your hair, your clothing, your address, your spouse, your residence but if you don't change your mind the same experience will perpetuate itself over and over again because everything outwardly changed but nothing inwardly changed want something out of life, if you want to change yourself, if you want to acquire something, if there's some goal that you want to reach, changing your behaviors, overcoming negative habits, it's challenging. It's hard. Most people go through life never discovering what their talents are. Most people never develop their talents. When you step into your fears, and continue to push yourself to go on, something happens for you. If you look at somebody who's really successful and you think, wow, I mean, they're, they're so amazing, they're such a genius, you gotta dig underneath and you gotta remember something. People are rewarded in public for what they've practiced for years in private. If you don't develop the courage to do that which has been given you to do, and you spend a lot of time going around trying to convince other people or trying to get their approval, what will happen is that you will lose your nerve and other people will convince you that what you're doing doesn't have any value and you'll give up on your dream. How much time do you have left? How much time do you have left? When you start thinking about that, we don't know. Most of us don't use the stuff that we have brought into the universe. Stop wasting valuable time. If you want something, 
You have got to be relentless. You've got to learn how to become resourceful. You've got to learn how to become creative. The power to hold on in spite of everything, the power to endure, this is the winner's quality. The hunger, the ability to face defeat again and again without giving up. This is a winner's quality. What this power is, I cannot say. All I know is that it exists and it becomes available only when a man or a woman is in that state of mind in which he or she knows exactly what he or she wants and is fully determined not to quit until they find it. There's greatness in you and you've got to learn how to tune out the critics outside and the critic inside. So I'm going to harness my will and I'm not going to let anything stop me. I deserve this. Most people give up on themselves easily. You know the human spirit is powerful? There's nothing as powerful. It's hard to kill the human spirit. You are unstoppable. Live your life with passion. With some drive. Most of us go through life with our brakes on. Holding back. Decide that you're going to push yourself. You've got to focus on you. And as you convince you, as you sell yourself, every day, every day, every day, you will begin to see a difference in the things that you're doing. Selling yourself on your ability to perform a job, to achieve a certain objective. Telling yourself every day, here I go again. And I got what it takes. This is my day. And nothing out here is going to stop me. The only thing that's going to make you happy, my friend, in this year or any other, is to step up. It's to raise the standard. It's to discover what you're capable of and feel that incredible power of pushing through whatever's holding you back and get to the other side of more of your true self. That's what this game's all about. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success. There is nothing wrong with your mobile device. You are venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for extra credit. All right. Welcome to extra credit. Uh, Like I mentioned in the podcast, um, cholesterol is a topic that's near and dear to me, uh, mainly because I have relatively high cholesterol. But at the same time, I I seem to think that I'm, I'm relatively healthy. But this one number uh, doesn't usually come up all that well to me. And I'm, I'm starting to come to the conclusion that, that there's a lot more to health than just this one number. Kind of like if you were to take a health and fitness test and uh, the measure of health was solely based on whether you could touch your toes or not. That, <laughs> that may not be the most accurate indicator of your health and fitness which I know may sound like a crazy analogy when it comes to cholesterol because it's such a big industry uh, with uh, the statin drugs. 
So I'm only playing this extra credit so you can hear a clip, uh, um, several clips. I may bounce around a little bit, but I, I want you to get some exposure uh, to this book. And if your interests peak, then it's pretty much a requirement that you go out and read or listen to this book. Um, and if you're taking a statin drug, you, yeah, you just need to go and listen to this book and come to your own conclusion. But uh, like I alluded to earlier, things aren't always as they seem. And I'll let this this book go ahead and make that case uh, for me. And then I'll have one little quick uh, comment afterwards before we um, close up shop here in the extra credit. But these are going to be clips from The Great Cholesterol Myth, and it's written by Johnny Bowden and Stephen Sinatra. And it's got some interesting things, and we're going to bounce around, like I said, but we're going to start with uh, a letter that was written by one of the doctors. Here you go. Dr. Sinatra, most doctors today will recommend that you take a statin drug. They might even nag you to do so if your cholesterol numbers are high. They will do so whether or not you have evidence of arterial disease and are a man or a woman and despite your age. In their minds, you prevent heart disease by lowering cholesterol. Once upon a time, I used to believe that too. It made sense based on the research and information that was promoted to doctors. I believed it to the extent that I even lectured on behalf of drug makers. I was a paid consultant to some of the biggest manufacturers of statin drugs, lecturing for hefty honorariums. I became a cholesterol choir boy, singing the refrain of high cholesterol as the big bad villain of heart disease. Beat it down with a drug and cut your risks. My thinking changed years ago when I began seeing conflicting evidence among my own patients. I saw, for instance, many patients with low cholesterol, as low as 150 milligrams per deciliter, develop heart disease. In those days, we pushed patients to undergo angiograms, invasive arterial catheterization imaging, if they had sufficient symptoms of chest pain, borderline exercise tests, and especially cholesterol readings of greater than 280 milligrams per deciliter. We did this because our profession believed that all people with high cholesterol were in danger of having a heart attack. We did the imaging to see how bad their arteries were, and indeed sometimes we found diseased arteries but just as often, we didn't. Many arteries were perfectly healthy. These results were telling me something different than the establishment message, that it wasn't just a simple cholesterol story. Faced with these discrepancies, I began questioning and investigating conventional thinking about cholesterol and looking at the cholesterol research more closely. I found other doctors who had made similar discoveries on their own and heard about how study findings were being manipulated. For example, biochemist George Mann, M.D., of Vanderbilt University, who participated in the development of the world-famous Framingham Heart Study, later described the cholesterol as an indicator of heart disease hypothesis as the greatest scam ever perpetrated on the American public. These and other dissenting voices were drowned out by the cholesterol chorus. To this day, practically all of what has been published and receives media attention supports the cholesterol paradigm and appears to have the backing of the pharmaceutical and low-fat industries, along with leading regulatory agencies and medical organizations. However, I stopped being a choir boy for cholesterol. I stopped believing. Here's why. I found that life can't go on without cholesterol, a basic raw material made by your liver, brain, and almost every cell in your body. Enzymes converted to vitamin D, steroid hormones such as our sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, and stress hormones, 
and bile salts for digesting and absorbing fats. It makes up a major part of the membrane surrounding cells and the structures within them. The brain is particularly rich in cholesterol and accounts for about a quarter of all the cholesterol we have in our bodies. The fatty myelin sheath that coats every nerve cell and fiber is about one-fifth cholesterol. Neuronal communication depends on cholesterol. It is not surprising that a connection has been found between naturally occurring cholesterol and mental function. Lower levels are linked to poor cognitive performance. I remember one patient, a federal judge, I'll call Silvio, who came to see me. He was taking a statin drug and complained that his memory had gone to pot, so much so that he voluntarily took himself off the bench. His LDL level was down to 65 milligrams per deciliter. I took him off the statin, told him to eat a lot of organic cholesterol-rich eggs, and within a month got his LDL level up above 100 milligrams per deciliter. His memory came roaring back. Memory loss is one potential side effect of cholesterol-lowering drugs. Some researchers suggest that doctors should be extremely cautious about prescribing statin drugs to the elderly, particularly those who are frail. I totally agree. I have seen frail individuals become even frailer and much more prone to infections. Though that surprised me at the time, it no longer does. Cholesterol plays a big role in helping fight bacteria and infections. A study that included 100,000 healthy participants in San Francisco over a 15-year period found that those with low cholesterol values were much more likely to be admitted to hospitals with infectious diseases. Many such patients told me afterward that their strength, energy, appetite, and vitality returned after going off statin drugs. They obviously needed their cholesterol. In addition to being a board-certified cardiologist, I've had a lifelong interest in nutrition. I've been using nutritional supplements in my practice since the early 1980s, particularly coenzyme Q10, an absolutely vital nutrient that is made in every cell in the body and is a major chemical participant in the production of cellular energy. Coenzyme Q10 is critically important for the strong pumping action of the heart, which gobbles the stuff up. And in the early 90s, I discovered something that shook my belief in statin drugs to the core. They depleted the body of coenzyme Q10. That fact is widely known now, but it wasn't then. And it certainly gave me pause. How could these miracle drugs that were believed to be the answer to heart disease be good for you in the long run if they depleted the very nutrient upon which the heart depends? Even today, many doctors aren't aware of the effect that statin drugs have on coenzyme Q10 levels. How ironic that the very drug they prescribe to reduce the likelihood of a heart attack actually deprives the heart of the fuel it needs to perform properly. No wonder fatigue, low energy, and muscle pain are such frequent accompaniments to statin drug use. It wasn't until the mid-1990s that statin drugs really took off. But prior to then, physicians had other go-to drugs for lowering cholesterol. Many research studies were conducted using these drugs, and in 1996, the U.S. Government Accountability Office evaluated these trials in a publication titled Cholesterol Treatment, a Review of the Clinical Trials Evidence. The report explained that though some trials showed a reduction in cardiovascular-related deaths, primarily among those who entered the studies with existing heart disease, there was a corresponding increase in non-cardiovascular-related deaths across the trials. This finding, that cholesterol treatment has not lowered the number of deaths overall, has been worrisome to many researchers and is at the core of much of the controversy on cholesterol policy, the authors wrote. It was also quite clear from the report that those who benefited the most from lowering their cholesterol levels were middle-aged men who already had heart disease. 
The trials focused predominantly on middle-aged white men considered to be at high risk of coronary heart disease, the report stated. They provide very little information on women, minority men and women, and elderly men and women. It's been more than a decade since that report was written, but it remains true that lowering cholesterol has a very limited benefit in populations other than middle-aged men with a history of heart disease. Yet doctors continue to prescribe statin drugs for women and the elderly, and, shockingly, many are arguing for treating children with statins as well. The True Cause of Heart Disease So if cholesterol isn't the cause of heart disease, what is? We know you don't want to wait any longer, so here's the short answer. The primary cause of heart disease is inflammation. The subject of inflammation will be a running theme throughout this book for reasons that will soon be made clear. But the first thing you need to know about inflammation is this. It comes in two flavors. You're probably already familiar with one of them, but it's the one you're less familiar with that's at the core of heart disease. Let us explain. Almost all of us have experience with acute inflammation. It happens every time you stub your toe, bang your knee, or get a splinter in your finger. When you complain about your aching back, an abscess in your mouth, or a rash on your skin, that's acute inflammation. It's visible and uncomfortable, if not downright painful. The redness on your skin is a result of blood that's rushed to the affected area. The swelling you experience is the result of an army of specialized cells, with names like phagocytes and lymphocytes, dispatched by the immune system to mend the injured area. The job of these immune system cells is to surround the site of the injury and neutralize nasty invaders, such as microbes, preventing the spread of potential infection. The swelling, redness, and soreness you experience as a result of acute inflammation are all natural accompaniments to the healing process. So we all know about acute inflammation, most of us from personal experience. But the other flavor of inflammation, chronic inflammation, well, that's a whole different ballgame. Acute inflammation hurts, but chronic inflammation kills. Dr. Johnny introduced the concept of the four horsemen of aging. These four horsemen all contribute mightily to heart disease, and we'll go over all of them in the sections that follow. For those of you who just have to know right now what they are, here's the list. Oxidation, inflammation, sugar, and stress. Yudkin's much more comprehensive data showed that the single dietary factor that had the strongest association with coronary heart disease was, wait for it, sugar. The good citizen LDLs, those big, fluffy LDL particles that, when they're predominant, make up a pattern A cholesterol profile. When the number of big, fluffy particles goes down, the proportion of your LDL population shifts in favor of the nasty, angry, atherogenic, BB gun pellet type particles, giving them a kind of majority rule. Sure, your LDL number will go down and your doctor will be happy, but meanwhile, because of the shift in makeup of your LDL population, your risk for heart disease goes up. Conversely, when saturated fat intake goes up and carbohydrate intake goes down, the opposite happens. Now you'll see a significant shift to more of those big, fluffy, harmless LDL particles and less of those small, dense, angry LDL particles. Your LDL population has just shifted, and the big, fluffy, harmless particles are now in the majority, leaving you in a significantly better place in terms of your heart disease risk. Sure, your overall LDL level may go up a bit, but what's actually happened is that there are now many more good citizens among your LDL population 
and far fewer bad ones. There are several blood tests your doctor can order that will tell you just how much of your LDL cholesterol is bad, bad cholesterol, the BB gun pellets, and how much of your LDL cholesterol is good, bad cholesterol, the cotton ball molecules. Tests for particle size include the widely used NMR test, the lipoprotein particle profile test, or LPP, the Berkeley cholesterol test from Berkeley Heart Lab, and the vertical auto profile test, or VAP. Okay, so that's about it. I know it was a little uh, herky-jerky. I was I was jumping around. I was just trying to hit the highlights of that book to, to let you know what's out there. Uh, again, if, if this is an issue for you, you want to listen to this entire book full of information. But uh, the long and short of it is uh, most people think cholesterol comes down to your HDL, which is your good, and your LDL, which is bad. Uh, but what scientists have recently discovered is within the quote-unquote bad cholesterol of LDL, there is a further subset of these fluffy pattern A molecules and these dense BB uh, pattern B molecules. And it's those pattern B ones that are the killer. So you could have a high LDL number, but if you have uh, lean toward a pattern A profile, you could be uh, all right. And your total cholesterol number, and in particular your LDL number, is probably not as good of an indication as some of these other lifestyle uh, indicators. You know, how much sugar you're eating, which is reflected in your triglyceride number, whether you smoke, uh, how much stress is in your life, how much you do or do not exercise. Those are a lot bigger uh, indications of how big or how at risk you are when it comes to heart disease. And I guess the point of this entire book is, sure, you can lower your cholesterol number, but what's the point of doing that if it doesn't lower your risk for heart disease? And it's, it's just a really, really fascinating book. So again, if you don't have cholesterol issues or know someone that does, you probably didn't listen to this extra credit. But uh, hopefully I, I put enough from the book to kind of pique your interest, uh, if it is an issue, for you to continue down the road and uh, further educate yourself. And uh, you know, maybe even have your doctor uh, listen to the book or read the book or give you his opinion on the book. So again, if you're further interested, the one test that I am about to take, I haven't taken it yet, but I'm about to take it uh, just to make sure um, <laughs> I'm thinking about everything uh, correctly. It's that VAP test, VAP. That was one of the three tests mentioned. Um, I think it's something, audio profile, something like that. But that gives you the breakdown of whether your LDL is a pattern A or a pattern B. So Anyway, just some good information, uh, especially if you're spending money on statin drugs, which could potentially have some uh, harmful side effects and may not even uh, do what their main intention is intended to do. That is namely lower your chances for heart disease. So anyway, hope you enjoyed that extra credit and we'll catch up with you next time.